This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Narration by Jordan Wilson. Please visit GaryNorth.com slash freebooks to download this book in PDF format. Conspiracy in Philadelphia, Origins of the United States Constitution by Dr. Gary North. Publisher, Dominion Educational Ministries, Harrisonburg, Virginia. This book is dedicated to the members, living and dead, of Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America, who for over two centuries have smelled a rat in Philadelphia. Appendix C. Philadelphia's Other Constitutional Convention. On Friday, May 25, 1787, the first meeting of the Constitutional Convention began in Philadelphia. George Washington was elected president of the convention. A secretary was elected, Major Jackson. The meeting was then adjourned. The convention began its first full session on Monday, May 28th. Across town, another meeting was ending on that fateful Monday. The, uni- the United Presbyterians Presbyterian Synods of New York and Philadelphia had met together. What they did at that final session, and at the meeting exactly one year later, was to change the course of Protestantism in America. It also paralleled to a remarkable degree the political events being engineered by James Madison. The issues were also similar. similar. The relation of church and state and the issue of centralized authority. Like Madison and his associates, between 1785 and 1787, a quiet group of churchmen in the Presbyterian Church had been preparing for a major reorganization. Even today, it is not entirely clear from the historical records just who was behind this push. There was no sense of imminent ecclesiastical crisis, but there was a sense of failure in the face of continuing problems that never seemed to get resolved. The standard argument of the Christian Constitution defenders is that the Constitution is implicitly Christian because it was accepted by Christian voters at the time. What they do not understand is that the, is the extent to which Whig notions of sovereignty had affected the Christians of that era. To argue that Christians would have opposed the Constitution had it been non-Christian assumes that the terms of political discourse in Christian circles was self-consciously Christian. On the contrary, Christian discourse had become Whig Unitarian with respect to the issues of church-state relations. The English dissenters, or commonwealthmen of the early 18th century, had moved the idea of pluralism from Oliver Cromwell's Protestant religious pluralism to some variant of Roger Williams' religiously neutral civil order. The dissenters of 1720 had abandoned Cromwell's idea of religious toleration of all Protestant sects. They had done so by extending the concept of religious toleration to the concept of the secular republic. This outlook had taken over political discourse at the Constitutional Convention in 1787. It had also taken over Presbyterian discourse at the Philadelphia Convention in 1787. The Presbyterian attendees at the Westminster Assembly from 1643 to 1647, which produced the foundational judicial documents of Presbyterianism, would not have understood the theology undergirding the revisions of 1787. The Problem of Geography War weariness had affected all the denominations, Presbyterians included. What had begun as a sacred cause of liberty had produced unforeseen negative results, as war always does. The loose morals that the war had unleashed made the church's work that much more difficult. Power shifts were already taking place within the denomination. Increased immigration from Scotland was making the church more theologically conservative and therefore less enthusiastic about the pluralistic theological heritage of the era of the First Great Awakening. At the same time, these immigrants were heading west, where there were no well-organized presbyteries. There was also a growing reaction against deism, skepticism, and the increasingly liberal rationalism of the remnants of Jonathan Edwards' rationalistic theology, the New Side Heritage. 
Attendance at the annual Synod meetings had declined during the war and had not recovered. The expanding geography of the American nation by 1780 had overthrown the theory of a single annual Synod meeting that could handle all business not capable of being handled at the Presbytery level. Changes were needed. A committee was appointed in 1787 to draw up a new form of Presbyterian discipline. Then, later in the day, another overture was suggested, the creation of a synod, along the lines of the Scottish Church and the creation of three synods. The records do not indicate who made this overture. On the face of it, this overture was highly peculiar. If the institutional problem facing the denomination was geographical, why would anyone propose the creation of a synod? The answer should have been obvious, to centralize the denomination once and for all. If the regional presbyteries were becoming more distant from the center, then there would have to be a central representative body as well as central judicial body that could hold the church's governmental system together. This was exactly what Madison had concluded regarding American civil government. To the committee, an overture took over. A second study on church government began. As is usual for Presbyterianism, no official decision was made at that time. This was paralleled by the late March meeting at Mount Vernon, at which Maryland and Virginia commissioners proposed ways of settling trade disputes. And like the Synod meeting, the records of what took place are unclear. A poorly attended Synod in 1786 resolved to create 16 new presbyteries. Action on the creation of four Synods was postponed. The, the report of the Committee on, on Discipline was discussed, but no action was taken. A new committee was set up to continue the study. A setting the meeting in September of 1786 led to a draft of a whole new constitution to which the presbyteries generally paid little attention. These events were paralleled by Madison and Hamilton's inclusive Annapolis Convention in September, which in turn led to the call for the convention in Philadelphia. Then came the Synod of 1787. From May 16th to May 28th, the Synod met in Philadelphia to discuss the formation of a new church structure. On the last day of the Synod, May 28th, the Synod voted to create yet another committee to print a thousand copies of the draft of the proposed form of government to be sent to the Presbyteries for consideration. But the Presbyteries did not have to confirm the plan in order for the 1788 Synod to make the changes official, unlike the Constitutional Convention's decision to have state ratifying conventions vote on the proposed new plan of government. The changes recommended by the committee were approved by the Joint Synod meeting exactly one year later in Philadelphia, May 28, 1788. This judicial act established a new constitution, 46 pages long, for the Presbyterian Church in America. The form of government radically centralized power in the National Synod. From that time on, it would take a two-thirds vote of the Presbyteries plus the assent of the Synod, or later the General Assembly, to make further changes. The 1788 Synod did this on its own authority after consultation with the Presbyteries. The Presbyteries did not vote. Trinterud tries to make this sound as if it was not a monumental centralization of power. After all, he says, the Synod could not initiate any further changes, only the Presbyteries could. This is hardly persuasive. Try to organize Presbyteries that are scattered across a growing country. Get them to initiate and then organize fundamental change. The whole discussion of the change in church government had arisen in 1785 because of the supposed need to escape the annual meetings in Philadelphia. The new plan also entitled the Synod to issue standing rules, which a majority of the presbyteries would have to ratify. Any student of bureaucracy can see what the results would be. The Synod would normally be attended by the activists in the presbyteries. Thus, any organized resistance in over half of the presbyteries would be unlikely. To change this new system, it would take a two-thirds vote of the presbyteries, church, and state. The restructured form of government included a revision of the Westminster Confession of Faith, specifically Chapter 20.
closing paragraph, chapter 23 and 31. Two, these were the sections dealing with the relationship of church and state, in which the civil magistrate was charged with certain tasks, such as defending the church and calling church assemblies. The main figure on the committee was John Rogers, who had served on all of them since 1785. He became an ecclesiastical leader in the late 1760s during the colonial battle against the sending of an Anglican bishop to the colonies. He believed so greatly in the separation of church and state that he thought ministers should not vote in, the civil, in civil elections. The synod was adjourned. In 1788, it reconvened, and the recommended changes in the confession were approved. Church historian Philip Schaff describes these alterations, quote, The changes consist in the omission of those sentences which imply the union of church and state, or the principle of ecclesiastical establishments, making it the duty of the civil magistrate not only to protect, but also to support religion, and giving it to the magistrate power to call and ratify ecclesiastical synods and councils, and to punish heretics. Instead of this, the American revision confines the duty of the civil magistrate to the legal protection of religion and as public exercise without distinction of Christian creeds or organizations. It thus pro professes the principle of religious liberty and equality of all denominations before the law. This principle has been faithfully and consistently adhered to by the large body of the Presbyterian church, church in America and has become the common law of the land. End quote. The Synod of 1788, in its last official act as a Synod, appointed John Witherspoon to address the new Synod before it elected a moderator, which was John Rogers. This seemed appropriate, for it was Witherspoon who almost certainly had written the preface to the proposed new form of government back in 1786. The preface stated, quote, God alone is Lord of the conscience, and hath left it from the free from the doctrine and commandments of men, which are in anything contrary to his word, or beside it in matters of faith or worship. Therefore they, Presbyterians, consider the rights of private judgment, and all matters that respect religion, as universal and inalienable. They do not even wish to see any religious constitution aided by the civil power, further that may be necessary for protection and security, and at the same time be equal and common to others. End quote. Thus ended the ideal of the theocratic republic in mainstream Presbyterianism and American Protestantism in general. That this official position had been articulated by the president of the College of New Jersey was fitting. Its predecessor, the Log College, had been the leading light in the battle against what Tr Trinitarid calls the, quote, narrow spirit of denominationalism. Founded in 1746, its trustees had invited newly appointed Governor Johnson Belcher into the Board of Trustees in 1748. They immediately voted him president of the board. Governor Belcher saw to it that the college was granted a new charter, and he worked hard to create a new board filled, with three exceptions, with graduates of Harvard and Yale. This is understandable. He had been governor of Massachusetts from 1730 through 1741. The College of New Jersey College was moved to Newark in 1755. It was moved to Princeton. That Jonathan Belcher became the driving force of the development of the College of New Jersey is, a rep is representative of what was taking place throughout the colonies. Belcher was not a Presbyterian. Nevertheless, he found it easy to cooperate with Presbyterians. His theology was express expressly geared to cooperation. Jonathan Belcher was a Freemason. But this puts it too mildly. Jonathan Belcher was the original Freemason in the colonies, having been in initiated in London in 1704. He was literally the pioneer. One Masonic historian historian refers to him as the quote the senior freemason of america after his initiation he experienced rapid success as a merchant his son became the deputy grand master of the provincial grand lodge of massachusetts as its founding in 1733 
1741, the Brethren of the First Lodge read a message to Mr. Be Mr. Belcher, who had been succeeded by a new governor the previous spring. The Lodge thanked him for the many favors you have always shared when, when in power to Masonry in general. End quote. The spirit of non-denominationalism at the College of New Jersey was not going to be overturned by Brother Belcher. It should be no surprise to learn what President Witherspoon revealed in 1776 in his quest for non-denominational money from donors in Bermuda, namely that no discussion of church government was tolerated at the college. Ecclesiology, apparently, is subsumed under adiaphora, things different to the Christian religion, things indifferent to the Christian religion. Quote, Every question about forms of church government is so entirely excluded that, if they, the students, know nothing more of religious controversy than what they learn here, they have that science wholly to begin, end quote. Thus concludes Trinitarid, James Madison did not learn about Presbyterian polity from Witherspoon. Quote, the theological doctrine of natural law and the political theory of natural rights provided the meeting place for Presbyterian and citizen rather than the Presbyterian form of church government. New England Congregationalists said Virginia Episcopalians or New England Congregationalists and Virginia Episcopalians stood with American Presbyterian laymen in this political theory. And with this com this common heritage they were able to work together, although their heritages in ecclesiastical polity still separated them widely. Widely. Brother Belcher would have been proud. Whigs ecclesiastical Three weeks after Witherspoon delivered his speech on June 21, 1788, New Hampshire's convention became the ninth state convention to ratify the U.S. Constitution, which immediately went into force as the new covenant of the nation. Thus, the Whigs political and the Whigs ecclesiastical had at last overturned the covenantal foundations which had been established by their 17th century Puritan enemies, and had done so in a period of slightly less than 13 months. Governor William Livingston of New Jersey was correct when he observed in 1790 that the clergy of America were, quote, almost all universally good Whigs. He himself had been the, quote, American Whig in 1768 when he wrote or at least organized a series of New York Gazette and Pennsylvania Journal articles against sending an Anglican bishop to the colonies, a step regarded by many colonists as being the first step in parliamentary control over colonial religion. Yet it was the American Whig himself who had asked rhetorically the most important question in American history, quote, why might, why might not Christianity have been allowed the honor of being called the national religion, end quote. The answer could be clear, should be clear by now, because the Unitarians did not want it that way and the Whigs ecclesiastical did not really think that the implicit Christianity of the nation was threatened by the idolatry of the new national covenant, i.e. the people as the new national god. A year after the 1788 Synod, in May of 1789, the Synod had John Witherspoon again chair a committee, this time to prepare an address to the newly elected President of the United States. The alternate, alter, the alternate chairman was John Rogers. The committee drafted a lengthy report in which it expressed these, those sentiments that have been passed down from textbooks to textbook. Echoing Washington's Masonic rhetoric, the address announced, quote, Public virtue is the most certain means of public felicity, and the religion is the surest basis of virtue. We, therefore, esteem it a peculiar happiness to behold in our chief magistrate a steady, uniform, avowed friend of the Christian religion, and who on the most public and solemn occasions devoutly acknowledges the government of divine providence." End quote. The address then identified the role of the Presbyterian Church in the American political religion. Quote, we shall consider ourselves as doing an acceptable service to God in our profession when we contribute to render men sober, honest, and industrious citizens, 
and the obedient subjects of a lawful government, end quote. The Grand Master from Virginia politely responded in kind. Conclusion I have argued elsewhere that the Church sets the pattern for what the state does. The pair of constitutional assemblies held on May 28, 1787, one civil, the other ecclesiastical, one beginning, the other ending, are the best representative examples in American history of how a change in the thinking of Christians parallels a change in the thinking of politicians. As the Presbyterians closed their meeting and the framers opened theirs, the nation was turned down a path that would have been covenantally unthinkable anywhere on earth a generation earlier, except of course in Rhode Island. In this case, the change in men's thinking transformed the, cons the constitutional, i.e. covenantal, foundations of both church and state in America. What had been called the Presbyterian Rebellion by its enemies in England became a Presbyterian Revolution judicially. The Presbyterians and the Framers ended the Holy Commonwealth ideal in America. The Presbyterians in Philadelphia, like the lawyers in Philadelphia, removed the covenantal foundations of the American Christian experiment and Christian self-government. Without these covenantal cornerstones to support it, the American Trinitarian edifice collapsed. We live today in its ruins. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.